0: Hello, you wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And we are heavy this week on the views and the reviews and kind of light on the news. And that is because, well, partly because I started watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and I've got a lot to say about that, and partly because a thing has happened. Uh, a, A kerfuffle in the comics world, if you like. And... I know that the comics world isn't that important to most of you, but to me, the comics world is everything. And I have opinions. So let's start there, shall we? So the fact that Disney Plus has dropped a new documentary on its Disney Plus channel, where else would it do it, about Stan Lee was just going to be a brief news item until there was some reaction. And that reaction now, I think, is worthy of some discussion because it does raise not just a wider point than the veracity of a documentary about Stan Lee, but actually about the way we do business in the business that we call show. And I'm including comics in the business that we call show right now because it is entertainment, it is showbiz. And I think in order to understand what Disney Plus have done, you have to understand that comics, like movies, like books, it's all entertainment, it's all show business in the end. The key word here being business. And I think it's it's kind of a universal truth that when you bring business into anything to do with creativity, immediately You are going to have compromises that are made that are uncomfortable. So what exactly has happened? Well, Disney Plus have dropped a documentary about Stan Lee. So far, so not surprising. Of course they have. Disney owned Marvel. Stan is a major part of what Marvel is. And a major reason that Marvel is the way it is. Of course they've made a documentary about him of course they have and fine and dandy now i have to caveat this by saying that i have not watched the whole of the documentary but i think i need to explain why i haven't you see as you may have guessed from the title of the show i am a massive massive geek and the the core of my geekiness is comics i have been in and around comics in one capacity or another for whew, 35 years, more than that now, knocking on 40 years, because I'm old, all right, just leave me alone. But as a result, I know a lot about Stan Lee. I mean, a lot. I mean, probably more than he's healthy for one person to know about another person they're not married to. I mean, I know a lot about Stan Lee. And because of that, I found the Disney Plus documentary pretty much unwatchable. And the reason I found it pretty much unwatchable is so much of what I saw was told in Stan's own words using archival audio, which you would think would be a good thing in terms of documentary making. But because of who Stan Lee was and what he was and the way he was, it's not great. And we'll talk about why in a bit. And actually, before I say another word, I really do feel the need because uh, there's been some anti-Stan stuff in the reaction to this documentary. And so I just feel the need to just lay my position out very, very clearly. In my view, modern comics would not be the way they are were it not for Stan Lee. And I, I mean that as both a good thing and a bad thing. Everything that's good about modern comics, I don't think we'd have that were it not for Stan. Equally, and just as importantly, the incredible amount of negative stuff that is wrapped up in the modern comics business, I don't think we'd have that were it not for Stan either. Now, we might have both things, the good and the bad, differently, but the way comics actually are, I don't think we'd have that without Stan. I really don't. And I'll go further. Whilst there are things that Stan Lee has done that I deplore, uh, I bow to no one, no one at all in my admiration of Stan the man Lee. OK. I just want to lay that down before we go any further, because I've got a lot of negative things to say about this documentary and a lot of it could come off of Stan bashing. And that is not what I'm doing. If I'm bashing anything, I'm bashing the legend. But what I really hope I'm doing is criticising the attitude and the mindset behind this documentary. So what happened is Disney dropped the documentary. And the day after that, Gillian Kirby, the granddaughter of Jack King Kirby, Release a statement on behalf of her father, Neil Kirby, the son of Jack King Kirby. And I recognise that some of you are sitting next to your listening device right now, thinking, who's Jack Kirby? If you're not a comics fan, you're almost certainly thinking, who's Jack Kirby? Even though you have almost certainly heard of Stan Lee. And that, my friends, Is the problem, because that is a ridiculous state of affairs that is completely unjust and should not be. So I'm just going to read you a little bit of the statement that um, Gillian Kirby released on behalf of Neil Kirby. He says. The 13th century Islamic poet and scholar Rumi said, the ego is a veil between humans and God. In the Disney Plus documentary bio of Stan Lee, the veil is lifted. Presented in the first person with Lee's voice providing a running narrative, it is Stan Lee's greatest tribute to himself. The literary expression of ego is the personal pronoun I. Any decent English or journalism teacher would admonish their students not to overuse it. So the challenge is extended to anyone who wishes to count the number of I's during the 86 minute running time of Stan Lee. We'll get back to that statement in a minute, because I think I agree with every word of it. Oh, there you see there go I. Uh, but I just want to, again, just make clear, this is not, this criticism is not at the feet of Stan Lee. Stan Lee did not make this documentary. Stan Lee gave all of the interviews from which this audio is taken. But I I think it's really important, whilst not in any way pretending that Stan Lee was not a massive egotist, because I think he probably was. I never met the man. but. I followed his career. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that if Stanley suffered from any kind of issue with self-esteem, it was a surfeit rather than a lack thereof. But we will come to the reason why Stanley presented himself in quite the way he did and how honestly this documentary doesn't, therefore, give an honest view of. Not only does it not give an honest view of Stan Lee from a side perspective, I don't think it honestly reflects how Stan Lee saw himself. So, you know, there's that. But anyway, just to just to nip back into Neil Kirby's statement. He says, I, oops, understand that as a documentary about Stan Lee, most of the narrative is in his voice, literally and figuratively. It's not any big secret that there has always been controversy over the parts that were played in the creation and success of Marvel's characters. Stan Lee had the fortunate circumstance to have access to the corporate megaphone and media, and he used these to create his own mythos as to the creation of the Marvel character pantheon. He made himself the voice of Marvel. So for several decades, he was the only man standing, and blessed with a long life, the last man standing. My father died in 1994. It should be noted, and is generally accepted, that Stan Lee had a limited knowledge of history, mythology, or science. On the other hand, my father's knowledge of these subjects, to which I and many others can personally attest, was extensive. Einstein summed it up better. More the knowledge, less of the ego. Less of the knowledge, more the ego. Now, I don't argue with any of that. But I think, at this point, some further explanation may be required for the uninitiated. What is Neil Kirby talking about? Who was his father, Jack Kirby? And why is Neil Kirby so cross about this documentary that paints Stan Lee as the guy who invented Marvel Comics and the guy behind the success of Marvel Comics? Well, honestly, that's the issue that makes all of this worth talking about. Stan Lee was in the right place at the right time, and there is no doubt he was very very good at what he did. His first job, from which he was fired, was as an office boy in a trouser company. Now, he says himself that had he not been fired from that company, he might still have been making trousers at the end of his life. What actually happened was he got another job as an office boy in a publishing company. A publishing company that included Timely Comics, the company that would grow to become Marvel Comics. Now, running Timely when Stanley came on board as a glorified gopher, if we're honest, was a guy called Joe Simon. And also a guy called Jack Kirby. Now, Joe Simon wrote stuff, Jack Kirby drew it. And by all accounts, and I think looking back at the Timely comics that I've seen, this seemed pretty accurate, Jack Kirby drew most of Timely's output. They had a lot of characters that you will not have heard of, and one that you have. The big character at the end of the 1930s at Timely Comics was a certain Captain America. Yep, you heard it. Captain America doesn't just predate Stan Lee's involvement with comics. Captain America predates Marvel Comics. Now, stuff happened, and young Stanley Lieber, as he was then, was invited to write a Captain America story. Not a comic strip story, but a prose story. And that was the first professional writing that I'm aware of that Stan Lee, as he would become, did. But as it did for so many people, the war intervened. In 1941, because let's be honest, America turned up late to the party, Stan Lee enlisted. But rather than being sent to the front, his writing abilities were noted. And he was actually seconded to the division of the army, the department in the army that made training videos and instruction manuals. And he wrote a couple of those to some success. He used comics as a medium to give instructions in a way that was really successful and actually reduced the amount of time it took to train certain people to do certain things. All well and good. And when he came back, as did many others, he went back to his old job, as did Jack Kirby. Now, there really isn't time here to give you the full history of Marvel Comics. I think what will suffice is just a little potted version. Basically, Stan Lee, as he became... And actually, it's worth noting at this point why he began to call himself Stan Lee. He called himself Stan Lee rather than Stanley Lieber because... When he did so, he didn't think comics were real writing, and he wanted to keep his own name out of them, so that when he went and did what he refers to as proper writing, his name wasn't sullied by being associated with comics. Now, that attitude irritates me, but it's one that he walked back from in later time, and do you know what? I was a pretentious idiot when I was in my 20s as well, so do you know what? He gets a pass for that. He genuinely does, but For reasons, Stanley became the editor at whatever Timely was called. I think it might have been Atlas by the time it did this, but Stanley became the head editor because nobody else wanted the job, seems to be the the reason. And at the same time, because Stanley's life, real life, was developing, you know, he had a wife by this point. He needed to make money to support himself. He... Well, if we're honest, he kind of abused his position. I don't blame him for this. I might well have done the same thing. But what he did was he was paid as editor of the company. But if he wanted to make money writing, he was paid freelance. So he only got paid as a writer for the for the writing he actually did. This is common in comics. It still happens. It certainly happened then. Fortunately, the decision regarding... Who got paid to write? Which writers got the, got which gig? Was in the gift of. Oh, let me just check my notes. The editor of the company, who was. Hang on, let's check my notes again. Stan Lee. So if Stan Lee wanted to make some extra money, he just hired himself to write some more stories. Now, that is by modern standards, I think, a clear contrast of interest. Um, and I don't, I don't think that would regard as ethical now. But I mean. Comics in particular and business in general in the late 1940s and early 1950s was kind of the the Wild West ethics wise. So, again, I'm prepared to let that slide. It did mean, of course, that having been before the war, the office boy who made Jack Kirby's coffee and collected Jack Kirby's sandwiches. Suddenly, he was Jack Kirby's boss. He was the guy who decided whether Jack Kirby got hired to draw or not. Now, I don't know how that dynamic worked, but that can't have been uncomplicated. I speak as somebody who, as a teacher, once taught a very able but somewhat rebellious student. uh, Hi, Ginge, if you're listening, who went on to qualify as a teacher, become a valued colleague somebody who I think genuinely was probably one of the best natural teachers I've ever seen. And She is a stunning teacher. And by the time I left teaching, she was my boss. And whilst I recognised that she was just a better teacher than I will ever be, and also she was a better leader than I will ever be, Uh, She was ideally suited to run an English department. I very definitely was not. And so I acknowledged that, you know, yeah, absolutely the right person for the job at the time she was given the job. And I had no issue with it at all. There was still a little bit of, hang on, I used to teach you when she gave me instructions I didn't like. Now, you know, I'm human. I'm, And it's inconceivable to me that Kirby didn't have A similar issue. But he was, uh, more than anything else, Kirby was a professional. And he brought his best game to his work every single day. I challenge you to find me a bad page of Jack Kirby artwork. You you may or may not appreciate his style. His style is, of necessity these days, a little old-fashioned. Because, well, it was... It's from a long time ago. He retired in the late 80s and, you know, he died in 1994. Clearly, clearly his work was not intended to be to appeal to modern tastes. The fact that he's still acknowledged as the greatest tells you a lot about the quality of his work. And you simply won't find a piece that he phoned in. His full attention and effort went into every single panel that he drew. But he wasn't the editor. And so when Stan Lee came up with vague ideas for characters and gave them to artists like Jack Kirby to draw, it was Stan Lee's name that got put at the top of the page. And Stan Lee, as the voice of Marvel, as the guy who was going out as the publicity hound to promote Marvel Comics, Stan Lee became recognised as the voice and the face and the personification of Marvel Comics. Now, that was just marketing. But it did mean that everybody else at Marvel was very much in Stan Lee's shadow. To the point that when you think Marvel Comics, now, oh, you very definitely think Stan Lee. And, you know, Stan Lee pushed that. You know, I mean, in modern times... Even the, you know, the running gag of the Stan Lee cameo in the Marvel movies. Jack Kirby wouldn't have done that, I don't think. Jack Kirby wouldn't have pushed himself forward in quite that way. That's not who he was. That is who Stan Lee was. And I don't necessarily criticise Stan Lee for that. I criticise all the people who just took that at face value. And it becomes an issue when we talk about who actually gets the credit for the characters that make Marvel and other comics companies what they were. Let's not, let's, let's broaden this out. Let's not make this about Marvel and Stanley and Jack Kirby right now, because it is a broader issue. Who created the fantastic four Stanley? He would have said so, but actually quite a lot of what the fantastic four became the names of Sue Richards, for instance, and the, some of the powers and the look, the iconic look of the character. Well, well, That was Jack Kirby. Spider-Man. Who created Spider-Man? Stan Lee, people will tell you. But the way Spider-Man looked, the suit, the red and blue with the webs, and the way Peter Parker looked, that was the artist. That was Steve Ditko. I mean, literally to the point that if you look at pictures of Steve Ditko in the early 60s, and then you look at pictures of Peter Parker as drawn by Steve Ditko, it's a self-portrait. So, you know, Co-creators at the very least. And as I said, let's not make this personal. Let's not make this just about Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Batman. Who created Batman? Until very, very recently. And I'm talking the last 10 years. Bob Kane. Bob Kane created Batman. Who will tell you that? Bob Kane would have told you that. But actually, if you look at the character as envisaged by Bob Kane, back in 1939, he's very different from the character that originally appeared on the page. Who, again, is very different than the character you would see in the comics now. But everything that makes Batman iconic, the Batcave, the cape, the colour scheme of the costume, the Batmobile, all of that, every single bit of that, That was not Bob Kane. That was the artist Bill Finger. Have you heard of Bill Finger? If you're not into comics, you probably haven't. For the same reason you haven't heard of Jack Kirby. Now, this is a weird thing. And comics isn't the only place it happens. It's an interesting world, comics. Everyone's got a story they want to tell. And I include myself in this. Writers, wannabe writers... Uh, I mean, ten a penny is overvaluing them. As, you know, wannabe comics writers, we are a thousand a penny. We're everywhere. It's not hard to find a wannabe writer. Finding a good writer, that's a different thing. But finding somebody who wants to write, not hard. Finding someone to draw your comic, though, someone who actually can, who can do a good job that will look amazing, that's really difficult. That's genuinely difficult. Because you know what? Drawing. It's really hard and it's time consuming. So, you would think that artists would be valued much more than writers because they're harder to get. But yet, it's the writers that everybody knows the names of. This phenomenon is not limited to comics. Let's just be upfront about that. Um, let's look at, oh, I don't know, something else I know something about music. A long time ago, a very long time ago, I was the lead singer of a band called Deadline. We were pretty good. And I can say that because, to my knowledge, no recordings of us survive. So we were amazing. I was not first choice for lead singer of Deadline. I was brought in after the other members of the band essentially decided that they couldn't work with the original lead singer. It wasn't hard to find someone to replace the original singer because... Lead singers in bands, a hundred a penny. Everybody wants to do that. Everyone thinks they can sing. Nobody needs to buy an instrument or learn to play an instrument in order to do it. And yet, suddenly I was the front man. Suddenly people were talking about it as my band. It wasn't. I didn't found it. I didn't start it. I wouldn't have been in it were it not for the other three members of the band. Hello, Smed and Nige and Hunty, if you're listening, which you're not, but... Suddenly, I was the frontman. I was the face of the band. And the people who actually wrote the songs, I wrote one song for the band. The people who actually wrote the songs were the the drummer and the lead guitarist. Now, if our lead guitarist had chosen to leave, we could probably have found another guitarist. Because, again, everyone wants to play lead guitar. If our bassist or our drummer had decided to leave the band, that was the it for the band. Because where are you going to find another drummer? Drummers are hard to find. Good drummers are impossible to find. Bass players? Who the hell wants to play bass and stand at the back? Very few people. And yet, name me the bass player of, oh, I don't know, Coldplay. Who plays bass for Coldplay? I don't know. I've got no idea. I've got three Coldplay CDs. I don't know who plays bass. I don't know the name of the drummer. I know that Chris Martin's the lead singer. Why do I know that? Because our priorities are weird. This is the whole, the same perception hole the same lack of interest of the consumers of the art hole that people like jack kirby have fallen into do i blame stan lee for that no no i don't that's not stan lee's fault do i blame stan lee's fault for putting himself forward to having a massive ego no no because i know that i would do the same that's my personality do i blame disney for putting together a documentary that gives a completely false impression of history Yeah, yeah, do a bit. There was no need for that. What would have been genuinely more interesting and more honest and fairer, not just to people like Jack Kirby, but also to Stan Lee himself, would have been a documentary that examined exactly how Stan worked with the artists he worked with, an examination of the Marvel method which involved Stan Lee as head writer, writing essentially an outline of a story, giving that outline of the story to the artist, say Jack Kirby, having the artist draw the story, and then getting the artwork back, looking to see what the artist had done with the story idea Stan Lee had given the artist, and then drawing the speech bubbles on top. Which means more than any other writer, writer, Probably in the history of comics, Stan Lee's stories were absolutely complete collaborations. The storytelling ideas of the artists were every bit as important to the story that got published as Stan Lee's vague idea that he gave the artists to to work with. Some exploration of that and the genius that was behind the idea, actually because it allowed Stan Lee to be the face of Marvel and to put his name on every story and to have that fairground Barker role that he had of drawing attention to Marvel Comics. It allowed him the time to do that and the ability to have his name on everything so that he, he really was, you know, the man, whilst putting out an incredible volume of stuff that simply wouldn't have been possible any other way. Now, that's worth exploring, and the contributions made by the likes of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko in particular in creating the incredibly distinctive look of Marvel comics in the 60s. That would have been a documentary that Disney could have made. They chose not to. What they've actually put out is propaganda. It's disinformation. It's promoting an untrue view of history for the promotion of a brand. And that's shoddy. At best, that's shoddy. And it perpetuates this idea that comics are the creation of one genius mind rather than what they actually are, which is, generally speaking, a collaboration between incredibly talented people. I mean, there are writer-artists. I could point you at Frank Miller, who has written and drawn. you know, if you buy um, Dark Knight Returns, That's Frank Miller writing and drawing. That's much closer to the idea of like one guy being responsible for everything. But even then, there were other people involved in that book who had an influence in the way that book looked and in that book's success. So even then, even when you've got somebody who writes and draws, almost always there are other people involved. So is Jack Kirby's son. Right to be annoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I think he is. I think he's got every right to be irritated. In the grand scheme of things, does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Because there is a danger that Marvel becomes a cult of personality that there are people who would argue that it already has. And that's not a good message to promote, I don't think. I think in the end, in all of the creative industries, it's really important that credit is given where credit is due. And there are generations of artists who have not been properly recognised for the work that they have done. Bill Finger, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, so many others. Is that all Stan Lee's fault? No. Could Stanley have been more generous with giving credit where it was due when he was editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics? Oh heck yes! I don't think there's any argument about that, and I think that's actually something that Stanley acknowledged in later life. I seem to remember—I can't find it now—but I seem to remember Stanley expressing some regret at the way he, what he refers to as his enthusiasm for promoting the work, the comics kind of got in the way. Now, he was the face. He was the voice. He was the showman who was there to sell the comics. And his way of doing that was to make it all about him. That's an effective sales technique. And I think he acknowledged that perhaps he'd gone a little far with that. And I, I do think he genuinely regretted the breakdown in his relationship with people like Jack Kirby. Which is one of the reasons I think documentaries like this do him such a disservice, particularly to use his voice to give the impression that he believed he was the be-all and end-all and the great I am at Marvel Comics. Because I don't think that's actually an accurate reflection of what he thought. And I think in the end, that's why I've just spent half an hour talking about this issue. Because I do think it matters. I really do think it matters. But what I think also matters is not just how a person is remembered or not remembered by the general public. I think it also matters how they're remembered by the people from their world, from their industry. And I think it is worth noting that nobody, nobody at all in comics is in any doubt of the importance of the work of people like Jack Kirby and Jack Kirby in particular. I think it's telling that the nicknames that apply are Stan, the man, Lee, and Jack King, Kirby. I think that sums up their relative contributions to what comics have become. There is no modern comics without Stan Lee. There's no doubt about that at all. But... Stanley could not have done what Stanley did without giants like Jack Kirby standing behind him. He he simply couldn't. And just because a lot of people don't know that doesn't mean it ain't true. And of course, you now know that. So go go look for some Jack Kirby artwork. Go just just see. The simplicity of the design, but the complexity of the composition, the things that man could do with a paintbrush. I'm not an artist. And, you know, I stand in awe of most people who can draw something that looks like the thing they're trying to draw. But every artist I know stands in awe of Jack Kirby. There's a reason they call him the king. And that shouldn't be forgotten. So, Disney, if you are listening, you know what to do. A documentary about Jack Kirby is long, long overdue. Told you I had opinions. Anyway, shall we move on? As I said at the beginning, I have started watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds and Season 2 is now beginning to stream on Paramount Plus if you have such a beast. So what's all the fuss about? know if I'm going to do a weekly review of Strange New Worlds Season 2, but I am going to do a regular review of Strange New Worlds. It's probably going to end up being weekly. I don't want to go too much into story, although I am going to be, as is traditional on this show, a week behind broadcast. So if you have paramount Plus, you will always have had a week to watch the current episode of Strange New World before there's any risk of hearing about it from me. If I'm going to do spoilers, there will be a spoiler horn. But because I kind of didn't bother with Strange New Worlds Season 1 until, well, a couple of weeks ago, really, I I think I should probably talk a little about Strange New Worlds Season 1 and Strange New Worlds in general before I get into specifics. If you are not a Star Trek fan, you may not know what I'm talking about. So let us go back. A long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away because that's the other Star franchise, but a long time ago, Paramount kind of relaunched its TV offering for Star Trek with a show called Star Trek Discovery. It was set 10 years before the events of Star Trek, the original season, and it featured a ship called The Discovery, which was a science research vessel focused for the first time not on a crew led by a captain but on an ensign a non-captain type figure called michael burnham who and hang on spoilers 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 coming up for star trek discovery if you haven't seen any of it and know nothing about it I can't imagine that at this distance from Discovery Season 1, if you care, you don't know anything I'm about to say. But, just to be sure. So, Michael Burnham was, somewhat controversially, Mr. Spock's adopted sister. I know, they call her girl Michael, It's outrageous. Um, now, this was a problem for a lot of people, because at no point in the history of Star Trek has anybody ever happened to mention that Spock had a human adopted sister. It seems to have slipped everybody's mind in every iteration of Star Trek right up until this one, which is set before all the other iterations of Star Trek. You throw in the fact that this show also featured Klingons who were blue and bald, for goodness sake. And something called a spore drive, which enabled the Discovery to go faster and further than any other ship ever created Something which people said, well, hang on a minute, why doesn't every Starfleet ship use this then? Although that was, to be fair to Discovery, explained rather well, I thought. It didn't work, or at least it did, but it caused massive problems. So there was that. Now, initially, if you go back and look at um, episodes of Geeks at the Gates from around this time, we talked about Discovery, and our initial, as a a little squad of Geeks, the Geeks at the Gates initially pronounced... Star Trek Discovery to be pretty darned good we were not on board with the haters who hated it instantly I don't know what the other geeks feel about Discovery because I haven't asked them since you know halfway through season one but I personally kind of I was about to say I kind of turned against it I didn't that's not true I just got bored with it for all sorts of reasons and I'm not going to go into them now, but they're they're probably going to come up as I talk about Strange New Worlds and what I like about it. Why am I telling you this? Well, because one of the things that came out of Star Trek Discovery that pretty much everyone agreed on was that their version of the Starship Enterprise, captained by its original captain, one Christopher Pike, was pretty darned awesome. Because Pike as the first captain of the, of the enterprise has been canon since the original series, since the pilot. In fact, Uh, this is deep Trek geekiness now, but if you watch the first ever episode, the pilot episode of Star Trek, the original series called the cage, it features an enterprise that is captained by Christopher Pike. Uh, It has a female first officer addressed as number one. And, Mr. Spock is just the science officer. Now, for all sorts of reasons, that didn't make it to actual series. The studio didn't like large aspects of it. They didn't like a female first officer, and they didn't like having an alien as one of the major characters. And the story is, I don't know if this is true, but the story is that Gene Roddenberry was presented with a choice. You can have the female first officer, or you can have an alien on the bridge. Pick. And Roddenberry went for having the alien on the bridge because that was part of what the message of Star Star Trek was to be as far as he was concerned, the idea of people working in cooperation. And he didn't want to have like this all aliens are the bad guys mentality that so much science fiction in the 1950s and 60s had had. But Star Trek the original series creates another problem for any prequel as far as the Enterprise and Captain Pike goes. Because it is established in season one of Star Trek, the original series, that Captain Pike comes to a bad end. I forget what the episode's called, I could look it up, but I haven't. It is revealed that, and bear in mind that I've already blown the spoiler horn, and this is spoilers for something that is now, what, 60 years old? So don't at me. It's revealed that Captain Pike was involved in an, ac- an accident. Which leaves him not only stuck in some sort of futuristic wheelchair contraption, but that he's lost the power of speech and can only respond yes or no by pushing buttons on his wheelchair contraption. Because, of course, it was the 1960s and the kind of voice production technology that Stephen Hawking, for instance, would utilise in the 20th and 21st centuries was unheard of when that show was made. Um, Now, yeah, I'm not going to say what happens to Pike at the end of that episode, but it's not all bad. It's not a completely negative episode. But that means that we already know where Pike is headed. But put that aside for a second. Anson Mount, as Captain Christopher Pike, really, really impressed. He was very quickly an audience favourite. And it seemed inevitable that some kind of Star Trek Enterprise series would get made with Anson Mount as Captain Christopher Pike at the helm. Now, clearly, they couldn't call it Star Trek Enterprise because that show already exists. So what they did instead was call it Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And season one took on some of the issues that being a prequel handed it head on. At the end of Christopher Pike's time interacting with the Discovery show... There is an accident. We see the accident, which causes Pike's injuries. Uh, He looks through a Klingon time crystal and sees the future. And so he now knows what's coming. He knows that in nine years' time, he's going to suffer a completely debilitating, utterly life-changing accident. And he knows there's nothing he can do about it. Something, again, that is addressed in season one. So you've got that going on in the background. But what Star Trek Strange New World season one really was, was... A rediscovery of the kind of Star Trek show we all actually loved. That show where you have a ship, whether that's the Enterprise, the Enterprise D, the Kirk Enterprise, the Voyager, you have a ship. It is travelling. It has a crew who you come to know and every week they get into some kind of scrape or shenanigans, and every week they deal with it and solve the issue as a team and come out on top. That's what Strange New Worlds gave us back. That's, Discovery wasn't that. Discovery leaned very heavily on the idea that Michael Burnham was going to sort everything out, and I think gave too much weight to her character not because she's a woman, not because she's a woman of colour, which were things that people complained about because people are weird and racist and misogynistic, but just that it's too much for one character. And that's not how Star Trek does things. Star Trek's always been about collaboration. And through season one, we came to really know the bridge crew, some of whom were already slightly familiar. And That actually is something that Strange New Worlds has done very well. We all know who the bridge crew is in the original series of Star Trek, Captain James T. Kirk, First Officer and Science Officer, Mr. Spock, Uh, Lieutenant Uhura on communications, Sulu and Chekhov at the helm. You've got Dr. Bones McCoy in Medbay and Montgomery Scott, Scotty in engineering. We all know those people. So they either have to be there or Somebody pretty compelling has to be keeping their seat warm until their characters arrive in the show. And Strange New Worlds has done that beautifully. So we have Spock as science officer. We have number one as first officer, as she was in the cage. Number one fantastically portrayed by Rebecca Ramigian. At comms, most of the time, although she is as a cadet, sort of interning through all of the department on Enterprise. We have one Cadet Uhura who isn't entirely sure she is Starfleet material. And of course we have some unknown characters. Characters we have not previously met. Uh, we have Melissa Navier as uh, as Lieutenant Erica Ortegas on the helm flying the Enterprise, doing it amazingly. We've got Christina Chong as La'an Nunyan Singh, security officer. And we have Babs Olusian Mokun, which I think I've probably pronounced incorrectly, and I apologise to him for that, as Dr Mbenga, the physician. All brilliant characters. And what does that tell you, that I know the names of these characters already? I've been watching this show for, okay, I've watched all the episodes of season one now, but I've been watching this show for, what, three weeks? And I know the names of the bridge crew. I could not tell you the names of any of the bridge crew of Star Trek Discovery. In fact, off the top of my head, although I can visualise the guy, I know what he looks like, I can't even quite remember the name of the captain of Discovery. But these characters are all incredibly Relatable and engageable. Andre Day Kim as Transporter Chief Kyle. Jess Bush putting in a stunning role as Nurse Chapel, about whom more later. Probably, actually, not until we talk about season two. Incredible performances. It's a hugely strong cast, is what I'm saying. All of whom deliver incredibly strong performances. And that's something... I don't think I've engaged with the crew of a Star Trek starship this much since the Enterprise D. If you didn't watch season one and you don't have a Paramount Plus subscription, you can, should you choose, at the moment, and this is true at time of recording, I am not sure how long this will last, but at time of recording, you can go to YouTube and watch the entirety of Strange New Worlds season one for free that's for free paramount plus clearly think they've got a winner on their hands they want you to fork out i can't remember what the subscription fee is now for paramount plus but they want you to fork that out so you can watch season two and they are prepared to give you season one for free to convince you so i would suggest you check it out if you've got even a passing interest in star trek check it out because you've got nothing to lose except a little bit of time and believe me Strange New Worlds is worth your time. So, join me next week when I give you a review of Strange New Worlds season 2 episodes 1 and 2, both of which will be over a week old by then. So, um, you will have had plenty of time to watch them before you have to listen to me waffle on about them. But I think I've talked about Star Trek for quite long enough now. So, um, I shall boldly go on to something else, shall I? And before you ask, no, I haven't started doing a regular Star Trek segment just because it gives me an excuse to use a really cool sounding new jingle. That might have helped. But just to prove that I am not a total jingle addict, the next section doesn't have a jingle because I haven't managed to find a decent one yet. And um, actually, this is both at once ridiculous and incredibly serious. At time of recording, which is the early morning of the 21st of June, 2023, a lot of people are making light of this on the internet. And um, I can see that aspects of it could potentially be objectively hilarious if, if the situation turns out to be non-fatal. At time of recording, we don't know that. And so I am going to be rather measured in my incredulity and stick as closely as I can to the geeky aspect of all of this. Uh, And This is actually uh, something that's been requested. Uh, This is the engineering section. Uh, I can't do the science jingle because this isn't science. This is absolutely engineering. But it's geeky engineering and it's gone wrong. I've been asked by listener Dave, and I don't think that's their real name, Uh, but I've been asked... My opinion and people very rarely ask me my opinion, but I've been asked my opinion on the stricken submarine with the billionaires aboard that has disappeared on a tourist jaunt down to the wreck of the Titanic. And I I have some views which I'm going to try and keep under wraps because my opinion here is not helpful in terms of whether they should be there or not. But I do have geeky opinions on the submarine itself. And they're not positive, folks. Um, The question that was asked by listener Dave was couched in terms of how hard can this be? Seriously, we put people in space all the time. So why is getting some people from a submarine... So difficult. And that demonstrates a lack of understanding of just how difficult going under the water actually is. If you go to space, you have a couple of things you have to deal with. Getting there is difficult and dangerous. At the moment, it involves chemically propelled rockets, which are essentially explosives. And so it's actually quite easy to kill yourself getting into space getting down again is also difficult. Many people have been killed doing that. And, you know, it's dangerous. It is. But neither of those things are particularly more dangerous than regular flying, which we do all the time. And then when you get into space, you do have the problem that space is trying to kill you. It actively wants you dead. It provides you with no oxygen to breathe. It provides you with a temperature environment that is always extreme, you are either shielded from the sun, in which case the temperature is going to be close to absolute zero, or you are not shielded from the sun, in which case the temperature is going to be stupidly high. And we are talking, yeah, potentially hundreds of thousands of degrees. So, you know, this idea that space is automatically cold isn't correct. If you're close to a great big whacking star, space can get pretty hot and you can travel between those extremes ridiculously quickly. This is an issue. It is, however, eminently solvable, as is the vacuum of space. The difference in pressure between the inside of the International Space Station or any other spacecraft and the outside of the International Space Station or any other spacecraft is one atmosphere. That's nothing. If you breathe in and hold your breath, you are keeping that kind of pressure differential in your lungs. It's not hard, is what I'm saying. If you want to go underwater, you are dealing with pressures of tens or hundreds or thousands of atmospheres. Water's heavy. The deeper you go, the greater the pressure of the water on top of you. And that is why this submarine is in such dire straits. It's designed to go. A couple of miles deep. That's deeper than any currently in service military submarine that we know about. If that's surprising to you, it shouldn't be. The Navy has no need to go that deep. A a Royal Navy or a US Navy or a Russian Navy submarine has no need to go a couple of miles deep to do the job it's designed to do. And because going deep is difficult and dangerous, And they don't need to do it. They don't. This is sensible. Yes, there are salvage submarines which go much deeper than that, but they are not crude. They are unmanned drones, basically, and they are not designed for rescue. Salvage? Yes. Rescue? No. Now, then we come to the design of this submarine itself, which seems to me to be pretty fundamentally flawed. But I need to do some research before I mouth off on that. So I'm not going to say anything else about that now. I'm just going to say that, you know, this is a news item that's in the news right now. I hope that by the time I talk to you again next week, we can genuinely laugh at the foolishness of the people who put themselves in this predicament because they've all got out safely. However, the one bit of research I've been able to do on this subject since listener Dave got in touch was um, to have a brief word with an old school friend who was a submariner with the Royal Navy and his view is very clear and it's bleak he says if you lose a submarine at depth at certainly at this kind of depth you are not looking at a rescue you are looking at best at a recovery now i hope that's not what we're dealing with here i hope that this submarine is actually not lost at depth i hope it's bobbing around on the surface somewhere and they just can't find it as i say at time of recording, the engineering challenges involved in all of this are massive and should not be underestimated. And the fact that we can put people on the moon does not mean that we can get people off the the, the bottom of the ocean. It's a much, much harder engineering job. And that's really bleak and there's no way I'm ending there. So we're going to move on to something a little bit more amusing and very briefly talk about Not a lot of time to talk about space this week, but NASA scientists have taken pictures of lightning on Jupiter. This is the Juno spacecraft, space probe, something like that, um, which arrived around Jupiter and its moons in 2016. Now, it actually captured this picture on its 31st close flyby of the gas giant Jupiter, which was on December the 30th, 2020. And it was about... Uh, 32,000 kilometers above the clouds of the, Geo- the Jovian atmosphere when it took the image. It took until late last year for that image to be developed. Um, and it was actually developed by a citizen sci- scientist, uh, a guy called Kevin M. Gill. Uh, and that is because Juno is returning so much information. The Juno CAM instrument, in particular, is returning so much information. NASA themselves. Don't have the 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 time to get everything done to deal with all of that data. So a lot of it is being dealt with by volunteers, and that is one of the reasons it takes so long to publish this stuff. It was actually only published this week, I think. Um, is it important? Well, we always speculated there was lightning on Jupiter. There's no reason why there shouldn't be, but it's Just cool, cool to see it. This very definitely, I mean, yes, scientists can learn a lot from this, but actually, I'm just finding this under, oh, wow, that looks cool! And I don't think we should ever underestimate the, oh, well, that looks cool factor in terms of space exploration. It's a powerful, powerful motivation to get out there and explore. And in the spirit of Star Trek, I think we should. The Images in question have been very widely covered in the mainstream media, so I'm sure you will have no trouble finding them online. If you just look for um, lightning on Jupiter picture, you will come up with an array of really cool looking stuff. If you've got any interest in space at all, take a look and appreciate the beauty of the solar system. Speaking of which, I am recording this uncharacteristically early. This is actually the day before The show drops, which means I'm recording this on the 21st of June, which is, of course, the longest day, which means today is a terrible day for back garden astronomy. It ain't going to get dark. However, it does mean that from tomorrow, the days start to get shorter. And while that sucks on many, many levels, on at least one level, it's awesome because it means in about six to eight weeks, it will get dark early enough that there's a reasonable chance of doing some proper backgarden astronomy with a basic amateur telescope. At which point, we will bring back the what's up little bit to show you and tell you what it is you could be looking for. But for now, we'll end space there. And we are very much going to have to leave that right there. Once again, time has defeated us and it's time to hand over to the next show. Very quickly, before we go, if, like Listener Dave, you have suggestions for things you'd like us to look into or comments, questions, anything like that, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send them. We'll be back next week with more geeky news, views and reviews, hopefully a little bit more about actual comics rather than the fuss and folder roll that surrounds them, and hopefully with good news about that submarine and the people aboard, as well as some analysis of the engineering challenges involved in what I hope was their successful rescue. So until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else. Stay safe, but above all all else. Stay geeky, folks. Bye.